are listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. Listeners, Forward Radio, a community radio station, helped hold our hands when we began taking baby steps with The Perks of Being a Book Lover show. So we'd like to help support the station on September 12th with Louisville's Give for Good campaign. Give for Good is a special 24-hour online giving day that helps support many worthy local organizations. If you'd like to support Forward Radio and the community voices that the station promotes, please visit giveforgoodlouisville.org and search for Fellowship of Reconciliation. For a $20 donation, you can support a full day of broadcasting of the station. We'd be thrilled if you consider any donation amount to help support Perks and the other programmers on this community-based station. Thank you. Most avid readers at some time or another have dreamed of working in a small neighborhood bookstore. Our guest today, Sam Miller, has done just that for over 20 years in different parts of the country, from Alaska to Philadelphia. She's now set roots at Carmichael's Books in Louisville, Kentucky. This year, she championed a 20-year-old book she loves, Jim the Boy by Tony Early, and has been a superwoman hand-selling it to everyone she knows. In fact, Carmichael's is planning an event for this book and the author on September 28th from 3 to 5 p.m. to celebrate how it has touched local readers' hearts. Sam shares with us what surprising genre is the up-and-coming star in their stacks, what books she reads over and over again, and which author's talk was so magical customers continue talking about it a year later. It's a great day to nerd out about the perks of working in an indie bookstore. Amy and I are in the studio today with Sam Miller, who is a bookseller at Carmichael's Bookstore, one of our favorites. So Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Well, as you said, I'm a bookseller. I also have a side hustle. I'm also a gallery assistant. So I have two jobs that I love, which I'm lucky and grateful for. I'm a Louisville native, and I live here with my family. What gallery? I'm interested I work at the Paul Paletti Gallery, which is downtown in Nulu, which is actually in a law office. So I joke my boss's superpower is, you know, lawyer by day, art by night. So you're an art lover as well. I am. I'm not a visual artist at all. So most in, the, in that job, I'm the only non-artist in the room. I was hired to be organized. So I'm like the non-scattered, non <laughs> You know, creative you person in the room one most of, of the those, time. Because a bunch of type B people cannot survive. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> right. And my boss was savvy enough to realize this is what I need to hire too. Not another artist. I need someone who's organized who's going to rein in everybody else. 
you've had a long career as a bookseller, and I just wanted you to tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I am. Uh, I believe lifer is the correct <laughs> term for that. I started long, long time ago when I was still in college, part-time at a local independent called Pages and Pages, which is reaching in the way back files because that hasn't existed for a long, long time. And then when I graduated from college, I got a full-time job at Holly Cook, which was another great local independent. And I worked there for four years. And then because they were a Borders client store, so you walked into Holly Cook, it looked like a Borders, it smelled like a Borders, it was independently owned. They provided all the inventory support. But we got all the news also of all the new Borders going on. And, and so when I found out that they were opening a store in Anchorage, Alaska, I was at a point in my personal life where I thought, hey... That sounds fun. Sign me up. So then I moved to Anchorage, Alaska and began my 20 plus years working for Borders in multiple different positions from bookseller all the way to store manager. Okay. So I have never <laughs> been to Alaska. Yes. When I picture Alaska, I picture like three people and six polar bears. So how, <laughs> like, tell me a little bit about the reading population that you experienced in Anchorage, Alaska. Well, Anchorage was so stoked that this was coming. What you have to understand about Anchorage is the joke in Alaska is the nice thing about Anchorage is it's so close to Alaska. <laughs> it's, it's like a little, small, God bless it, dumpy town because they have to use the cheapest possible building materials. The buildings have to be durable. So nothing's pretty. Nothing's accessorized in any way. It's also be very practical. And there's not, honestly, a lot going on. The population swells by like 100,000 in the summertime, but year-round, it's only like 250,000 people. So there's not a lot happening in Anchorage most of the time. So a new store opening up, much less a Borders Superstore with books, music, and DVDs. Holy moly. <laughs> that was Hot awesome. <laughs> so it was a big deal. And what Borders discovered is they were totally unprepared for how much Anchorage loved the borders. We would do mail outs to the bush and people would like call with long lists or just once they got to know you, they would call you and say, hey, you sent me some books last month that were great. Here's $100. Just send me books. So like we had to double and triple and quadruple the, the postage budget almost every month for the first year we were open because we had no idea what to expect as far as the, the mail out business from that store. Were there a lot of literary events that happened with we that show? We did have well? some. And in fact, for a while, I was helping out with events when, and when I was working at that store. And we had the author John Krakauer, who, of oh, course, really? wrote Into the Wild. Uh -huh. Before it came out, on the original tour, like we were one of the first dates. And it was so interesting to me because Alaskans hated that book. Really? With a passion. Really? And they hated talking about Christopher McCandless. They hated what he stood for. They mm. thought he was dumb mm. and foolish and reckless and other people could have been injured or killed and tried attempts to rescue him. All things which aren't necessarily untrue, but they completely missed the stories about the Superman part of the story or the great adventure part of the story or, you know, taking that one big risk. That was lost on them. They did not care about that part. They did not care about that at all. So literally, I remember sitting at the table with poor John Krakauer, people just walking by, noticeably not stopping. It's not like some of not every event's going to be a, a you know home run, of course, but noticeably cold shoulder, not stopping. And it was like, oh man, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so do you just feel like a lot of Alaskans felt like it gave Alaska a, a bad image? I do. Yeah. And, okay. And they are they were very touchy too. That I, when I moved up there was also around the time when Northern Exposure was had just been popular. It had just gone off the air. But they also hated that. They felt it made them look foolish or goofy. And I'm like, it's a TV show. I don't think people 
people really think Alaskans are like the people of Sicily. But they did not care for it at all. So it was, that was very interesting to me. Well, now I feel like I should take back what I said about three people and six polar bears reading <laughs> books, because obviously I have some preconceived notions about Alaska, too. So anybody from Alaska listening, I take it back. I'm sorry. I enjoyed my time in Alaska there very much, and I would like to go back at some point and visit, but I never have. But I spent like two years there, oh, wow. and then I was kind of moving up the, the food chain and borders. So myself and my partner I was with at the time, we moved to Philadelphia at that point. So I, then I worked in Springfield, which is a, a very blue collar suburb of Philadelphia, which I enjoyed. Very nice customer base there, which was super fun. And then moved to Michigan after that, where there's tons of borders, because that's where they started, obviously, and worked in like three or four different stores up there. So how did you make it back to Louisville? Well, you know, I had my nomad years, 15 years away, felt like that was a good time. My brother lived in town at the time. He had got married, had kids, folks getting older, etc. I always knew I would want to come back. Louisville was my favorite place where I've ever lived. But it was just a question of finding the, the, the road back. So your job is about because I know you have to promote different kinds of books. So some books are brand new. And then some books, I think you refer to them as backlist. So can you explain a little bit about what you do on a day to day basis and what your job is as far as promoting different books? I'm nodding fervently. Uh, <laughs> yes, I can. Obviously, what's front list is the new stuff. So when for example, the publisher's representatives come to meet with the buyers at the store. They're talking about selling you front list titles. These new things are months out. This is what it's about. This is what the author's done before. Or this will appeal to readers who enjoyed blank. Backlist titles are that author's older titles. So obviously, sometimes they're still bestsellers if it's especially a book club favorite or it's always on a summer reading list, school reading lists. Those are going to be around forever. In a small store like Carmichael's, we try to have a carefully curated section of a little bit of everything, but we're very small stores, so you know we can't have everything. So part of what we try to do, though, is have the business of the neighborhood, and we've been in business now for 41 years, so they have a pretty good idea of what the neighborhoods where the stores are located are into, have that drive what the sales look like. So even though both stores are owned by the same people, the same buyers, they have a different feel because they're in a different neighborhood, and those neighborhoods buy different stuff. Now, will you be able to find Kill a Mockingbird at both? Of course you will. But, you know, Bargetown Road is a little edgier. Their crowds, you know, skews a little younger, a little hipper. The Crescent Hill store where I work mostly is, you know, slightly older and, you know, has a different demographic. Borders was a corporation. So they yes. had bookstores everywhere where Carmichael's is your local bookstore. Exactly. Did the Borders in Alaska or the Borders that you worked at, did they do the same things to curate the books that would fit that town or that neighborhood? Yes, but it was done more by the A-word algorithm uh, than by actual people. Because obviously the buyers were in the, the home office in Ann Arbor. They couldn't live or work or know everything about everywhere we had stores. So they were tracking trends. What This store sells bird books like crazy. So we're going to give them all the new bird books. This store can't sell a bird book to save their life. So we're not going to give them any or maybe just the very basic. So they have one or two. Same thing. It's an algorithm determining that, not necessarily a person. So you've got something special that is coming up the end of September. The book is Jim the Boy. So Tell us a little bit about that book and about why that was the book that you wanted to promote. Well, it's a funny story. When I started working there, I was talking to Miranda, who's the manager of the Frankfurt Avenue store. And, you know, she knew that I was a longtime bookseller. And I said, can I bring in some backlist titles, maybe some things that you don't carry that I like to hand sell? 
And hand selling, for people who may not know, is kind of what, just what it sounds like. It's when a bookseller sells you a book that you weren't looking for uh, based on the conversation that you're having or your interest that you've cited or another book that you've enjoyed. I said, coming in, can we get some titles that I like to hand sell in? She said, of course. And I said, I promise I will make it worth your while. So one of those was called Jim the Boy. It's by a North Carolina author. His name is Tony Early. The story is a simple one. It's about a young boy in North Carolina who's being raised by his widowed mom and her brothers during the Great Depression. And it has very short chapters. Each one, Jim learns a little lesson about responsibility, being a man, what being a friend is. It's very beautifully written. I would say even poetically written. And it goes down super easy. The language is so beautiful. You just, you could read it in a couple days, no problem. But then what happens is a couple days later, it'll hit you like a ton of bricks and you realize how profound it is, which you didn't notice when you were reading it. And you realize it's really about everything. That was one of the books that I said, can we please get some of it? And so we did. Keep in mind, this is a book, well now 19 years old. So it was never a bestseller. It was never made into a movie. No one's really heard of Tony Early unless you've studied with him at Vanderbilt or one of the writing workshops that he does. I just kept hand selling it. It's a great recommendation. It's what I call a grandma book, and I don't mean that derogatorily. I think it's great for everyone. It appeals to a wide swath of people. You can give it to someone you don't know very well. It's not well known, so even if someone reads a lot, they probably don't have it or haven't heard of it. Uh, so it's a great hand sell. So I just kept recommending it. When people asked me for gift suggestions or something for them, I would just keep bringing it up. About 50 copies sold. I jokingly said to one of the owners, you know, when I sell 100 copies, we should have a party and invite Tony Early. And he jokingly said back, sure, that sounds like a great idea. So then 70 copies later, I again say, when I reach 100 copies, we should have a party and invite Tony Early. Except I was serious this time. And he said, sure. And he was serious too. So this year, as we are edging in on 100 copies, we reached out to Tony Early, who is Maybe it's one of the bizarrest emails he's gotten in a long time. <laughs> and said, hey, would you like to come to Louisville for a party? We don't really know what this event will necessarily look like. Because again, the book is 19 years old. There's not a movie. It's not a bestseller. Generally, you have a, an event for books that are new or authors that are big and famous. This is not your normal event. But it's happening. So I'm super excited about it. And I'm excited to see what will come of it. So when is the party going to happen and what's it going to look like? What's it going to entail? Well, we're still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> but it is happening in September and he will be there. That's the most important part because it wouldn't be a party without him. And I'm hoping that he will share some passages. I'm hoping that I will get to share some passages too. There's actually a heartbreakingly beautiful letter in the middle of it that Jim's mom wrote to her late husband about Jim that just like breaks me every time. So I sincerely hope that either one of us will get to read it. And I hope that we can reach through, you know, Carmichael's websites and, and social media that some of the hundred people who've bought the book, many of whom have come back to say, thank you for recommending that book. I really love that book. Now what else do you have for me? I'm hoping that they will come and meet him and that it will be a special event for everybody. But like I said, it's it's kind of a little unusual. This is not usually the way book events work. When he responded to your email, when Tony Early responded, what, I mean, was he like, sure, or? Obviously, it's an email. It's kind of a flat communication. But if I was reading 
the tone correctly, I think he was a bit taken aback. And he said, you know, it really means a lot to me that the book means that much to you. That, again, it's not an email that you would get every day. And it was super funny. We exchanged emails and then he put us in touch with his wife, who apparently is the the planner of their family because apparently he's double booked himself before in the past. Then we had to go through Mrs. Early to actually schedule <laughs> the when would ha- what would happen. Has he written other books? He has. Uh, he has multiple other books, but unfortunately nothing that's too recent. He has another novel and an essay collection. How did you discover that book? I mean, had you picked it up just accidentally? Yes. I mean, it's just a case of seeing it on a table, the cover appealing to me, flipping it over, reading the flap, and then, hey, this sounds cool. I mean, I don't even think I got an advanced reader copy or a galley. And I, honestly, I can remember the my reactions the first time I read it, but I don't remember, you know, heavenly voices or a light shining <laughs> on the book. But what I really love about it, the best people, I think the best books are both a balm and a tonic. And I think Jim the Boy definitely fits that bill. And from what readers who have come back to me after I've recommended it and enjoyed it, it seems like it's the same for them. So about backlist titles, I actually like to read backlist titles. That are, there are some readers who only want to, to read the new, sure. new shiny book. But I always sort of feel sorry for all those backlist <laughs> titles. So I always prefer the titles, but I would assume they might be harder to sell. But they're still important. Yes, sometimes they are harder to sell depending on who the author is and depending on what they are. Like if you're talking about an author who has wildly different titles, their age might not make a difference so much. But someone who kind of grows into their craft, you know, sometimes that's interesting too when you go back to the older stuff and you can see oh, they got a lot better. What are some of the challenges in general of marketing and promoting books? There's a lot of noise. There's some money dedicated by publishers to advertising things, but not a lot. And the majority of it goes to people who probably don't need the help. Like, it's great that there's a James Patterson commercial for his new book, for example, but he probably doesn't need the help. A lot of it is done by the troops in the field, if you will. It's done by the booksellers, which is why publishers are so generous with handing out advanced reader copies Mm. and galleys to, to booksellers, because they really do hope we'll read them, we'll recommend them, we'll write them up, write blurbs. If you have picked up one of those books or if you've seen books with blurbs on them, sometimes those are bookseller blurbs and those are actual booksellers who read and enjoyed it early on and are helping to spread the word about it, which is super important, especially in debut author cases because they're debuts. No one knows what to expect of them. So You talking about that makes me want to know when you get books in, so these that are sent by publishers, do you as a bookseller, I mean, is there a big stack and you just get to go look through it and pick? It's going to make you drool. (laughs) But yes, there's a huge case and you can just take whatever you want and as many as you want. Wow. I mean, so reading is like part of your job. It is, but I'm not really allowed to do it on the job. Oh, okay. Okay. But yes, it is part of the job. And that's one of the things that distinguishes, I would say, especially an independent, but an actual Brooks and Mortar bookstore than, you know, just shopping online. Many of your online retailers also offer algorithms that if you say you like something, they might be able to offer you some things. But it's not a human that does that. That's a computer that does that. So that doesn't necessarily account for the quirkiness of readers. And I think all readers are mostly quirky because you mostly like this, but you also have a soft spot for this topic way over here. So that comes from human interaction, I think. It's in the publisher's best interest for booksellers to be well-read and it's in Carmichael's interest for us to be well-read. So they're happy for us to have as many of the free copies as we can. It also helps us with events too, because the more noise we can make about a book, 
the more visual we are in the eyes of the publishing community, the more likely we are to get big events and famous authors and get called upon for that sort of stuff. There was a book I read a year or two ago called The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, but it was about a bookstore and a, a bookstore owner. But there was a rep. I mean, it's a little bit of a romance in there. But there's a book rep who comes and visits him and suggests books that she thinks that he would like. So are there reps like that that come? There are. Yes. <laughs> that, that's a thing. That's a job you could have and, uh-huh. and travel and talk about books all day. So have you read that book before? I have, and I love it. And that's one of my other grandma books. So I'm so happy that you brought it up because that's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, we at Carmichael's do something, and it's not an original idea. It was stolen. I, God bless the original person who thought of it because it's a terrific idea. We do something called a blind date with a book mm. where we take a book, wrap it in brown, plain brown paper, and write a very brief description of what it is. Not enough so you know what it is, but just enough to intrigue you. And then you have to buy it sight unseen. And the storied life of A.J. Fickery is my, one of my favorite blind dates because it's just, it's got a little bit of everything, to your point. It's got a little romance. It's got an orphan on the doorstep. It's set in a bookstore. It's got humor. It's just terrific. So mostly what I write when I do a blind date is a great book for when it's all too much. <laughs> yeah. How do those do, those blind? I've seen those in your store. Do those... They do, well. they do well. And people are just tickled by the concept. Even if they never take a chance on it, They often people will just take a look every single time they come in just to see what they are or to test themselves to see if they could guess what it might possibly be. You talked about reading. So is it something where you're encouraged to read a lot or is it something where they say once a week you have to read a new book? No, because we all have different reading speeds. Mm-hmm. We also have our staff shelf talkers in the store. If you've been in any independent bookstore, not just Carmichael's, likely you've seen them hanging from the shelves, mm-hmm. little blurbs written by mm-hmm. actual booksellers about why they love those books. I always look for them when I go into a bookstore because I'm curious what they're recommending. We also do those online on our website. So if you weren't updating those regularly, then yes, someone would come talk to you and say, hey, what are you reading now? Uh, let's, let's get those updated a little bit. And honestly, some people are better at it than others just like almost everything in life. And it's funny sometimes even booksellers who are, you know, super great readers can be super shy writers, which I find interesting. I also function as the trainer for Carmichael's. So sometimes it's up to me to try to break in new people as far as like how to write a good blurb and what they should do. And it's funny, they can spend like 10 or 15 minutes going on and on about how great a book was and how much they loved it. And then you put a piece of paper in front of them and they freeze. It's like, just write down what you literally just told me. You were saying, you know, some stores might sell a million you know, bird books and another one, not a single one. So are is there certain genres that sell well at Carmichael's or some that we might be surprised? Well, we sell a lot of fiction, not necessarily very surprising. Um, we do very well with the genre fictions because we have multiple booksellers who are kind of gurus in that aspect. We also sell graphic novels and because we have a very carefully curated graphic novel section. And that kind of is on the upswing, both as in general, industry-wide and for Carmichael's. It seems like the more space we devote to it, both in the kids' store and the adult stores, the better we do with it. So the genre fiction, are you talking? Sci-fi, mystery. So you, you mentioned the growth of graphic novels. So can you talk a little bit about some graphic novels? What, what have you noticed? Because that has been a big trend. I'm an educator, so sometimes I worry, like, oh, you know, are we, quote unquote, dumbing down literature and reading? So can you speak to that a little bit? I, first of all, disagree. 
I think the best graphic novels, even if it is an adaptation of a story that wasn't originally a graphic novel, both should be integral if, if the project is successful. You shouldn't be able to imagine it without the, the words chosen or the images chosen. But I think it's so helpful for reluctant readers. So especially when I'm working at the kids' store, sometimes it kind of hurts my heart a little bit if, if parents are especially like, no, you have to get a real book, meaning graphic novels aren't real. They have to get a chapter book. And it's like, uh, please don't. I, I don't make it a chore. We want them to want to read. Or maybe compromise and get a graphic novel and something else. I, I mean, I understand, you know, kiddos can get stuck in ruts like everybody else. And yes, we all want the new dog man. But, you know, you just don't make it seem like a chore. Make it a joy. And it's supposed to be a joy. And I think that you will grow a reader, even a reluctant reader. I mean, all of us have our own success stories with encouraging someone who's standing there with crossed arms, everything you put in front of them, no, no, no. But then, by golly, you pull out a graphic novel and then the ice breaks. My middle schooler, he loves graphic novels and that's all he wants to read. And so I took him to The Great Escape and he wanted this big book of Deadpool. What kind of mother buys her kid Deadpool? <laughs> and I'm like, this kind. I'm like, if you'll read it, I'll buy it. So even though I worry about that, I, I still, if you'll read it, I'll get it for you. Well, that doesn't mean that he won't progress to other things. For a lot of people, it's an entry into reading, into literature. And just because that's what he wants to read now, it's sort of like with eating taste, like just because you're 10-year-old only wants to eat grilled cheese sandwiches for <laughs> six months doesn't mean that they're never going to eat anything else. And I guess, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this is what I tell myself. If all he ever wants to read his whole entire life is graphic novels, I'm just glad he's reading something. I just want him to read. And I really don't care what he reads or how he reads, but I hope he reads. No, and there's so much graphic novel, just like cutting edge stories. Some of the boldest, like gay and lesbian stuff or other quote, outsider stuff. In many ways, the pioneers of that genre led the way as far as telling those kind of stories on a larger scale. And in some ways, you know, the rest of the standard publishing is catching up to them. Yes, even if they all only just read graphic novels, there's lots of good, not just grilled cheese, but steak out there. <laughs> or whatever the, the best food metaphor would be. Caviar. So I'm curious, if you're reading tons of books, there's going to be some that you're just like, eh. So do you have a responsibility just because it's a book and you're, you work at a bookstore to promote every book? Or if something doesn't speak to you, you just set it aside and maybe hope that somebody else, it's their thing and they can promote it? I look at it as my goal is for you, Joe, customer, to walk out with something that you're going to love. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that I love. When I first started selling books, I was super snobby. And of course, I would like, oh, Danielle Steele? Well, sure, I'll get you Danielle Steele. <laughs> but now I find the longer I do it, I'm just enthusiastic if someone else is enthusiastic. Like if you're totally stoked about X, Y, or Z, I'm going to be stoked about it. And I love it when I hand someone their book and they just like clutch it to their chest. And that doesn't happen just at the kids' store. It happens at the adult store, too. And I love that because it's like they were waiting for it, they were waiting for it, and they've got it, and they're super excited. To your point about recommendations, though, if someone asks me honestly, I'm not going to tell them a book is good if I didn't think it was good. But that doesn't mean that they would feel the same, and that doesn't mean that that wouldn't be a good recommendation for them. And you also, as a bookseller, don't have to actually read a book in order to recommend it successfully. You just kind of have to have a grasp of what it's about, who it's appropriate for, 
who it might work for as a reader. You know, you can pick up that information lots of places, New York Times Book Review. There's lots of reviews everywhere these days, especially with the great podcasts that we have about <laughs> literary stuff, or Lit Hub is a great place for essays. Well, I know sometimes Amy and I have the discussion, you know, because we try to read as much as we can, and some books, you know, I mean, you're just not going to love every book you read. When we talk about books, well, it might not be my thing, but... That doesn't mean that me just talking about it and telling people what it's about, if, if that's their thing, they might pick it up anyway, regardless of what I think about it. So Carmichael's has been rocking it out with the, the authors that you've had recently into the store. And I'm, I'm wondering, do the publishers say where the authors go? Or do you all have to, I don't know, like sell yourselves to get authors? How does that all work? Selling yourself is a good way to put it. They actually send out seasonal, what are called grids, where it's just a big spreadsheet with all the authors published by that publisher who are going to be on tour. And then they'll have a different column with some specifics, like they're only doing doing the Northeast or they're only doing the South. And then we look at the list, see who we would like to have and then plead our best case and we have a really good events team who makes really good pleas for people and so we've gotten some really to your point some fantastic people especially this year I feel like we really have had some really great events but it's kind of like the essay question on a test it's like you have to say why we as Carmichael's would host a great event and why that author should come to us and sometimes that means having a partnership with something else sometimes that means that bringing up you know, something about Louisville or the community that a publisher in New York or wherever wouldn't know about that is going to, you know, be the tipping point to get them to come here. Have there been books that came out and maybe you knew about them or you had read them out of that big gigantic pile that I'm very jealous of you being able to pick (laughs) from that you maybe didn't think would go anywhere that did or you thought they would go somewhere and didn't? Well, I remember... And it wasn't me, but I remember someone reading the Delia Owens, not even, I don't think it was an advanced reader copy. I think it was like an uncorrected galley and saying that they thought that it could do something. So kudos to them for spotting that one because they and Reese Witherspoon were ahead, way ahead of that particular You're referring curve. to Where the Crawdads Are. I am. Mm-hmm. Also known as the, the title most gotten wrong by customers. I've had customers <laughs> come in and ask for, do you have the mosquito book? And I'm like... <laughs> Do you mean where the crowdheads sing? Yes, we've got it. Well, I'm wow, I'm impressed that you got that from mosquitoes. Well, I mean, it, it is with those yes, kind of bestsellers. It is like one person after the other, and those with those kind of book club titles too. They tend to have a long life in book clubs because, you know, some book clubs are more on the advanced cutting edge. They like to read super new stuff, but some clubs wait for the paperback or for more word of mouth. So sometimes they, those book club favorites live a long, long time. One of the things that's unique about an indie bookstore over the big A word (laughs) is that they're smaller. They're in your personal neighborhood. What does an indie bookstore offer just a regular book shopper that those big A stores can't? A smile, greeting, your name, your dog's name in my case. (laughs) I mean, we know those things and being ahead of the curve and maybe the big A word would know if you were reading the series and the new one was coming, they're going to be like, hey, the new Don and Leon's coming. Let us let us reserve that for you. But we do that too. Or we offer you something that you might like that's new, that's like that, before you even ask. Hey, I read this and I thought of you. I thought you might like this. I, I'm so grateful that the owners chose the neighborhoods that we're, our stores are in so well 
their walking neighborhoods, their family-oriented neighborhoods. People have grown up with us, and now they came as kids, and now they bring their kids. Yeah, like we're neighborhood fixtures, and I, that, that's not something you can qualify necessarily to that feeling of, okay, it's nice to have something show up the next day in a box on your doorstep. But you can't qualify that feeling of just walking in and me saying, good morning, how are you today? Or, you know, did you see that? blah, 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 based on the conversation we had two days ago? Or did you enjoy that new book that we talked about last week? You know, you, you can't put a price tag on that kind of stuff. That That's just like why you live in a place where you live and why you make the buying choices you make because you get a good feeling and the book dust. I mean, there's a thousand, <laughs> oh, there's a thousand things. The, the, smell. the I, smell. To me, it's just walking into it and the feel of it. But I don't like to read eBooks. Like I want to hold the book in my hand. So I think for a particular kind of person and I would hope most people just the feeling of walking into a bookstore itself is is worth a little extra for the experience well I know sometimes you do have to shop for that person that you don't know very well and I know for myself or at the holidays our family does like a secret Santa and so it's like I don't know what they're into I would have no idea and I guess you could google a good random book but I mean that coming from somebody who's well versed in lots of different books is going to mean a lot more to me and I'm going to feel like that's a more reliable thing than if I just do some random Google search. Well we appreciate that (laughs) And, and that's kind of the general idea is we're paid to be experts and we try to be. And kind of book matchmakers or a book yenta, if you will. Oh, I love that. (laughs) So with the success of the Tony early selling project (laughs) that you gave yourself, is this something that you and Carmichael's is going to continue with a different title? I don't know if if that will be, except for maybe, hopefully, if especially if the event was a success and it gets some attention, thank you, uh, (laughs) that some other people might be encouraged to stand up for or to, you know, champion a a book that, you know, they maybe wouldn't have championed before. Like I said, it all kind of happened accidentally and organically. It wasn't necessarily until I made up (laughs) the goal. It wasn't necessarily a goal. I do love to sell that book. So in answer to your question, I I don't know. We'll have to see what the event brings, if anything. But it's, it's a fun, warm, fuzzy, human interest bookseller story. If you love books at home, you know, during your off time, and you work in a bookstore, do you ever talk about anything other than books? Or is that just you're always talking shop? Not always. My sweetheart is not a book person. He's not a reader. So he's a music person. So that's one of my other passions. So I, I do get a, a little bit of break at home. Um, my folks are big readers, though, so I'm happy to talk books with them. But I don't find talking about books to be work. So just like any of your passions, like you'd be happy to talk about any of your passions all day long and into the night. I, I feel the same way about books. Well, and with that, we're going to take a break. And when we're going to come back, we're going to talk even more about books as we talk about what we're reading lately. We are back and we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been reading. So Carrie, what's going on with your nightstand? So this isn't on my nightstand. This is on my phone because it's an audiobook that I've been listening to. So this book, I don't know where I heard about it, but I've been wanting to read it for a while. It's called Being Mortal, Medicine, and What Matters in the End, and it's by Atul Gawande. So I am really interested in 
growing older and death. I, I really have a fascination with death. And I wanted to read this because uh, next month I turn 46 and my parents are getting older and it's just a weird, wild ride. I read the book that you recommended to me. Smoke in Your Eyes? Yes, mm -hmm. Smoke in Your Eyes. And so I read that on vacation. And I loved that book. Just absolutely adored that book. I thought it was fascinating. Oh, I got to look up who the author is because I can't remember her name off the top. But that is a Caitlin Dougherty. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's why you have a bookseller. <laughs> so that book is about her experiences working at a crematory and about how people die and what happens to our bodies when we die and what families do and don't do once death occurs. And it was a behind-the-scenes look at it. I mean, it was gross. Some of it was totally gross. And I started to recommend it to my mother-in-law and my parents, and I thought, yeah, I don't think they would like this book. You definitely have to have a, a pretty hearty stomach, I guess. Don't I couldn't read it when I was eating. Let's put it that way. So I read that book and I loved it. And so then this had been on my list, this one I'm currently listening to, Being Mortal. And I just really feel like it's a book that everybody needs to read and listen to because I, I feel like we don't really talk about aging. We don't talk about getting older. And so then when you do start getting older and your body starts creaking and things start happening, it, it feels like, I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't know why this is happening. And it's, that's just what happens when you age. And he talks about how medicine doesn't always allow us to age and to die in a way that is good. So medicine sometimes, medicine is very good at fixing things that can be fixed. And there are some things that medicine will prolong the physical act of living, but it decreases the quality of your living. So for example, if you can be on a ventilator for a very long time, but what is your quality of life going to be if you're on a ventilator? And the doctor talks about the research that shows actually a lot of people who have terminal illnesses, the ones who choose to do hospice care outlive the people who choose to do another round of chemo or another round of radiation. They actually, not only do they live longer, but they enjoy their lives a lot more during those last months or those last years of their lives. So I think it's fascinating. And I feel like it's helping me as a middle-aged person think about what do I actually want for myself? What what do I want my life and my quality of life to be? And I just think that th there's just so many conversations like that that we don't have with ourselves and we definitely don't have with the people in our lives. So I, I know that's, it sounds terribly depressing, but it's fascinating. How long was the book? I mean, it's an audio book and I think it's about 20 chapters, but they're not too long. I would say each chapter is maybe 30 minutes. So not very long. The, the one thing that I don't love about it so the author is Atul Gawande, and his family's from India. And so he talks about his grandfather, who lived to be like 110, and what that was like, the family taking care of him. The person who is narrating the book is very 
obviously not from India. And so I feel like there's this disconnect. Couldn't they have found one person with an accent that would be more representative of the author? That would have been a little bit better. But the more I've listened to it, you know, I let that go and was able to get at the meat of of what he's saying. We have Sam Miller in the studio with us. Sam, what are you reading right now? Well, one I've just read and loved is the new Laura Lippman called The Lady in the Lake. I've always been a fan of her. She's a mystery writer by trade, also married to David Simon for you Wire fans. But she has a series about a female private investigator, um, Tess Monahan, that's set in Baltimore. But then she writes standalones, too, which are technically mysteries, but they're kind of like in the Tana Frenchie kind of world where the mystery really, it's more about the psychological study of the people involved. It's not necessarily about uh, an Agatha Christie kind of whodunit. But this one's set in the 60s in Baltimore, and it's about kind of a middle-aged a white woman who cops out of her so boring marriage and she gets a job at a cub reporter at a newspaper and she determines that she's going to solve a murder of a missing black woman and she's not afraid to step on anybody or break any kind of conventions to do it in both a good way and a bad way. But it's told from her perspective and the perspective of well, seemingly almost everyone in Baltimore. So a Baltimore Oriole baseball player has a bit in it, a gangster, the dead woman talks in it too. So it's it's very broad focus. And I'm so impressed. It's like our 22nd novel. She's an author who keeps trying. She keeps swinging for the fences to keep continue on with the baseball. Um, she keeps doing interesting, unusual things. And I really appreciate that. It's a vintage story, but it has a really modern feel with the questions about privilege and who gets to tell the stories and how do our stories in the newspapers, who gets to tell them and what, what do they mean and what's the truth really? And lots of thorny, interesting questions in a mystery. You, you said it's set in Baltimore? It is. So Amy has this thing, and I, I've started to do it too, where we're going to go someplace to a different city to read, you know, try to find books that are set there just to give us a sense of where we're going. So is this a book that somebody who is maybe going to Baltimore, you know, it would give them a sense of what the city's about? A little bit, especially if they were traveling by time machine, since it's <laughs> set in the 60s. Uh, but... I think it gives a flavor. It's hard for me to say, actually, because I've read all of her books and a fan of all of them. So that just might be my, in my head, her cumulative work Mm. says a lot about the city. Uh, But it's kind of like a a Me Too period book, if you will. So it's, it's, it landed on the bestseller list. I'm hoping this is kind of the one that breaks her through big time, because I feel like for the past couple of books, they've all been terrific and like pop on the bestseller list for like a week. And, but it doesn't like, super big breakthrough and people don't know her name as well as they should I feel and I'm hoping fingers crossed this is the one that's going to do it for because you know when you when you love an author it's like it's fun to be part of like a super cool club who's like yeah have you read this one yet and only a small (laughs) select group know but you do feel really proud if you've been like oh yeah I've been reading her for years yeah I knew about it all along (laughs) you all are finally just catching (laughs) on exactly so Amy what are you reading I'm actually reading a book from an author that I came and saw at Carmichael's just a couple nights ago. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was about mm, 
halfway to two thirds through with it when I came to the reading, but it's a book called The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek by Kim Michelle Richardson. It, it is, it was published this year. It's historical fiction. It's set in rural Eastern Kentucky in the mountains during the depression in the 1930s. And it combines two really fascinating topics just on their own. One is the PAC librarian project uh, from the 1930s. And the other is the Blue People of Kentucky. So the, the Pack Horse Project was a, a program that Franklin Delano Roosevelt instituted uh, during the Depression to try to get books to people up in the mountains in very remote places that there were no roads. And it's sort of like a bookmobile service, but by horse or mule or sometimes even just by foot. The other main part of the story is about the blue people. So the blue people, there was an extended family, or maybe you would even call them a clan in very rural Kentucky that suffered from a genetic blood disorder, and it turned their skin sort of a bluish hue because their blood doesn't oxygenate properly the way that ours would. And it's in a recessive gene. But when you take that recessive gene and you put it in a remote area where people cannot travel far to find a mate, you know, and so when they have children, it just sort of concentrates that gene. Blue people in this part of Kentucky, and that is a real thing, they were discriminated against. They were shunned. They were considered colored just like someone of African descent would be. So the story is about a woman named Cussie Mary Carter, and she is a blue, what they called a blue, but she's also a pack librarian. Her father is a coal miner in that region, so there's also a big part of the story is about sort of the the unrest that's going on in the mines at that time. There was a lot of violence between the coal companies and the and the unions with the coal miners. Cussie is she's shunned by most of the townsfolk, but she's embraced by her patrons who she takes the book to. So my favorite part of the book was really the part about the books and how books really can change people's lives. That to me was the most powerful part of the book. I really enjoyed it. I think if you like historical fiction, if you like Appalachian literature, if you're even just intrigued by either of the the two main storylines, you should read it. To me, those two subjects could almost be their own books. So in some ways, I almost felt like she took on a lot in this book and maybe I would have liked to have seen it two separate stories or something but I did really enjoy it. I love Appalachian literature and my mother's side of the family is from the coal fields of West Virginia. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, they were all coal miners so I was very intrigued by that portion of the book and if anyone out there who's read it or is interested in that kind of thing too, if you're ever heading out to the east coast on I-64 like you're going to go to Virginia Beach, if you stop in Beckley, West Virginia which is right off of I-64, there's an exhibition coal mine there. So you can stop. They have an old mine that was shut down, I think, back in the 50s or 60s. But you can take a little coal car and a former coal miner will take you in there and show you how they used to from the oldest times of when they were coal mining, when they would actually take mules in there to the more modern time where you had, you know, motorized cars, but show you how they would extract coal from the mines. And you get a sense of how claustrophobic it was in there, how it's it's damp and it's dark and it's, you know, it's it's scary in there. But also on that property, they have a school, they have a church, they have uh, the housing that was in the coal camp. They've refurbished and you can tour through there. Um, and not too far from there is 
a company store that's still in its original condition. Uh, it's called the Whipple Company Store, and I visited that last summer. Uh, we were going whitewater rafting in Fayetteville, West Virginia, at the New River Gorge, which lots of people go and do that. But there's this company store there, and it was a fascinating tour. It's a three-story building with an elevator, and they used to keep the coffins in the basement, and there was an elevator that would bring them up because whenever a coal miner died, they would just bring up another coffin to put them in and bury them in. I, I think all the things that she talked about are so rich of, of history, and they're just fascinating, and that's why I love historical fiction. All right, we'll be back in just a minute, and we're going to do our top five with Sam. We are back with Sam Miller, a local bookseller, and we are going to do her top five. So my first question for you, Sam, is what is your top book that you read again and again? Well, I'm going to say Watership Down. That's so funny. I was thinking about choosing that as my book club selection for this year. And then we sort of have a rule. It has to be under 500 pages and it's like 492 and I thought that that might be cutting it too close why why do you say that well, I think some of that's glossary so <laughs> surely the page count doesn't include a glossary <laughs> I would say in my life so far at least I'm 51 years old uh To Kill a Mockingbird and Watership Down have been the two books that have been with me the longest that have stayed with me now there have been other books that I needed for a while for example, I used to reread Catcher in the Rye every year until I got into my late 20s, early 30s, and then I basically just wanted to smack Holden, <laughs> and I I really didn't need it anymore. Like, whatever I was rereading it for, I didn't need it anymore, so I could put it down. But I've never gotten to that point with Watership Down. In fact, one of my literary tattoos is a rabbit from Watership Down. It's one of the great quest stories. I feel it's an underrated classic. I don't think enough people have read it. Uh, and despite the scary original movie and the kind of disappointing recent miniseries, I still don't think people, it, it's out there in the consciousness as much as I believe it deserves. I, I do feel like it's a just one of those classic books that were originally like A Hobbit or like an Alice in Wonderland that were originally made up to tell to children that because they started out that way, they have that those hooks that hook you deep in. And some primal place you don't even can't even really articulate very well. At least every year or two, I'll go back. Maybe not the whole thing, maybe not the mythology chapters, but at least the story chapters I'll revisit. For those who may not know, Watership Down is about rabbits. <laughs> All the characters are rabbits. I just think it's important to know that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, from our interview with Sherry Howard from a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about how talking about difficult things in a book, it's sometimes easier to do it through animals. Yes. And so if you think about like the book Animal Farm, Animal Farm is all about people and what humans are capable of doing, even though in the story, all the characters are animals. So Watership Down, I have not read it. It is on my list. So it's funny with those kind of books too. You, I mean, they become embedded in your life in ways that you may enjoy it when you read it, I'm sure you will, but it won't be embedded in your life the same way. Like I discovered it in eighth grade, which I feel like is the perfect time for it because it's a book about archetypes. All the rabbits are basically archetypes. And that's the point of your life when you're starting to get a, a clear sense of, I'm a person, I'm going to decide what I am. Am I going to be a leader like Hazel? Am I going to be a mystic like Fiverr? Am I going to be a storyteller like Dandelion? That's, I think, why it hooked me so much. In addition to it's just 
it's beautifully written and it's a great adventure story is because of the archetypes. Like when you're young, that's when you're figuring that kind of stuff out. And I think that's why it stuck with me. And so literally in eighth grade, you could check out a book for two weeks. I would check it out from the school library for two weeks, return it for a week, check it out for two weeks, return it for a week. And finally, my dad took pity on me and he bought me a mass market paperback (laughs) copy, which I still have, but I also have a nice hardcover copy. That's actually the copy that I read now. So my next question would be, like we've talked before, you all get lots of great writers there. Is there one top writer that you would say was the most memorable to you when they came? You were talking about the good events we've had this year. There's been a lot of really great interaction because a small crowd, but the right kind of people. An example of that is we had Casey Sepp a couple weeks ago. She wrote Furious Hours, which is about the book that Harper Lee didn't write. I was at that one too. (laughs) (laughs) Great job. I mean, it wasn't as large a crowd as I hoped for, but it was the right crowd because her proofreader lived in Louisville, of all places, and they'd never met in person. They'd only worked together long distance, so they finally got to meet in person. Also, a gentleman who knew Harper Lee and lived in her apartment building in New York also lives in Louisville now. He's like 90-some-odd years old. He doesn't get to go out much, but he got out for that event. And she, he had offered her some letters and some you know, stories and anecdotes for her book. And so she got to meet him for the first time. Those kind of small moments are super cool and I think make them so worthwhile to attend, especially because, dang it, they're free. <laughs> just like, come to the store. But another one. favorite, just I've been at Carmichael's five years, and probably my knee-jerk reaction when I saw that question was the Silas House event for his book Southernmost. I was at that one too. (laughs) Of course you were. Um, Because I I feel like I need to say this. I've I've got younger kids. Like I'm a little bit tied up more so than Amy is. Amy's most of her kids. I know but I'm I'm feeling a little guilt. I do want to say too I just I want to insert this. I just think it's so cool that we have this show and we're talking about archetypes. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> there we go. But that event, it, obviously, he's a Kentucky author of note, so we couldn't have it in the store. We, we have partnerships with other venues because we do have a very small store. The fixtures are on wheels, so we can make a, an event space. But for a crowd of any size, we have to go somewhere else. And Silas House has this new novel out, has gay and lesbian themes. But our church neighbors down the street, Crescent Hill Baptist, stepped up and said, we would love to host him. They have a beautiful sanctuary. They're a beautiful faith family. And they were so welcoming to us. Before the event even happened, that kind of inclusiveness blew me away in the first place. But then you go into the event. Silas is reading. He also invited several local musicians, Joan Shelley, Daniel Martin Moore, to play live music of songs that he was listening to as he was writing the novel. So he would read, they would do a song, the lights were coming in through the stained glass window, they were on the altar. I mean, it was just... It was the most amazing reading I have ever been to. And the problem with it is, though, it was the meld of the music and his reading passages and them sort of interacting with one another. But then it has made most of the other readings I've gone to since pale in comparison. The bar is set pretty high. But it was, I mean, it was an event that was, I mean, I think the only right word is magical. And it was so magical that you knew it was magical while it was going on. Sometimes you don't know something about that until it's over and you're reflecting on it. But literally for weeks afterwards, people would come in and say, I was at that Silas House event. And that was amazing. But to your point, when he came back again this summer, because the book came out in paperback, then we did kind of feel like, well, what do we do this time? (laughs) My next question is, a lot of people associate books with coffee. They go to a coffee house, they grab their book, 
if you go to a coffee shop with your book, what's your top beverage that you get? Well, I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm a tea drinker. So it would be tea, depending on type of day, or sometimes like a special, you know, like a frozen hot chocolate, for example, is a nice special treat. And because we work at Carmichael's, we have a nice relationship with our neighbors at Heine Brothers at all the stores. So it's always nice to take a break from the store, go see the baristas and then come back with a, a nice drink. So I would say, yeah, any kind of the fancy drinks with whipped cream, that, that would be a nice treat. Those are hard not to like. Is there a specific kind of tea that you like to drink? I'm a pretty big Darjeeling fan myself. Okay. When you've traveled, what has been the top indie bookstore that you've discovered? If I'm going somewhere, I always like to duck into an indie bookstore, even before or during the times of my career when I wasn't in books, I would always want to do that. Some of my favorites, Book Soup in LA is fantastic. City Books in San Francisco. Uh, Parnassus in Nashville has great shop dogs, so it's always nice to go see them. I love a shop with dogs <laughs> in it. Avid Bookstore in Athens, Georgia. The team down there is fantastic. If I make it back to Michigan, I would love to go see Literati because they have the best social media. I would love to go duck in there. It's so beautiful online. I can't imagine it wouldn't be in person. So I took a trip to New York City this past February, and when I was there, I stopped into a couple bookstores. And I had been to New York City before, but I had never been to the Strand bookstore. And I went there, and everybody raves about it, and I will say it was too crowded. I'd had loads of books. You could, I'm sure you could find anything that you were ever looking for in there. But it was so crowded with so many people that I almost felt like claustrophobic and I had to leave. But a bookstore I found that I did like is called Housing Works. And it was a beautiful space with like these spiral staircases. They sell part new books, part used books, and all the proceeds go to an AIDS project in New York City. But they had like a little coffee shop in the back and it was like exposed brick. And that was my new favorite that I've been to. So our last question for you, Sam, is what is your top spot in your house to read a book and what's special about that spot? Well, depending on the weather and lately insects, I would say the front porch. I live in a shotgun house on a busy city street. It's kind of like the Dr. Seuss that happened on Mulberry Street unfolding in front of you all the time. Like I said, if the weather's nice, I love to sit on the front porch, have a cool glass of something, and then just read, look up, watch the world go by, read some more. Maybe one of the neighbor dogs would come say hi. That, that would be my top spot. So I'm a bedtime reader. Now I can read other places and at other times, but I get most of my reading done at bedtime. But for some reason, I just read better in bed and that time of day. So you don't have trouble like holding it up like this? No, unless it's Moby Dick. (laughs) Which you did read last year. I did. So you must have laid on your side. (laughs) No, I just propped it up with a pillow and complained mightily. Okay, Sam, we have really enjoyed having you. So the event at Carmichael's will be in it's going to be September 28th on Saturday afternoon the time is still forthcoming it has been so great to have you we've been nerding out on <laughs> how awesome it must be to be a bookseller at Carmichael's thanks so much thank you all I appreciate it thanks for joining us today for show notes for any episode please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. 
finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.